Hello there, and thank you for joining for another episode of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this podcast, we hear from authors of newly released books on Turkey and the region. Give our Facebook page a like and or follow the Twitter account at Turkey Book Talk. There are show notes and links at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com. And if you like it, please do rate or review the podcast wherever you listen to it, which helps more people find it. Remember, if you haven't already, do consider signing up to become a Turkey Book Talk member for exclusive extras and to help us keep going. Joining our growing list of signed up members gets you transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on Turkey Book Talk via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive which so far amounts to over 90 conversations and which includes a number of extra interviews that were not previously published on the podcast. Members also get access to an exclusive discount deal, a whopping 35% of the cover price of books published in IB Taurus's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category, IB Taurus which is now part of Bloomsbury, has well over 400 books in its Turkey and Ottoman history series, including both academic and general interest titles. Turkey Book Talk members receive a special code for a 35% discount on books in that series, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Last but not least, members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, covering various categories including Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics, journalism, the Middle East and Europe. That archive was written over the course of five years and was previously available online but nowadays a turkey book talk membership is the only way to access it to become a member all you have to do is pledge a minimum of three dollars per episode via turkey book talks official patreon account new episodes go out every two weeks so the monthly membership price is no more than six dollars of course if you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more then you'll certainly be more than welcome but so long as you pledge that three dollars or above per episode membership is entirely at your own discretion members only get charged when a new episode is published so there are no prior commitments or strings attached you'll be free to sign off whenever you want but now let's get cracking with this latest episode in it we speak to Harris Theodorelis Rigas he's the translator of a huge new work published by the small Istanbul-based publisher Istos that work is the first of three volumes in 19th century Greek scholar Scarlatos Byzantios's survey of the 2000 year history and then present day social reality of Istanbul this first volume is over 800 pages including extensive footnotes and it really is a doorstopper. There are some rather slow sections but it is mostly a very entertaining read full of interesting digressions and rich anecdotes drawing on classical, Byzantine, Western European and Ottoman sources. Scarlatos Byzantios is very entertaining company with a unique perspective on things guiding us through the neighbourhoods, monuments and social practices of the city with flights into its ancient history. Harris is also one of the founders of Istos, a small but effective publishing house based in Istanbul which specialises in works related to the city's Greek minority and which has a growing catalogue of very interesting titles in Turkish, English, Greek and other languages. We talk about Istos's work later in the conversation but I started by asking Harris to introduce us to Skarlos Byzantios. Who was he and what was his background? Uh, let me start by saying, William, that I think that Skarlatos Byzantius is one of those hidden gems of 19th century scholarship. We know very little about his, his life, actually, apart from some scattered references in his own texts and uh, the research done by Stefanos Pesmazoglu, who has also prepared a foreword for uh, our edition. Skarlatos seems to have been born in Romania around 1797, even though he himself and his 
context claims to have been born in Istanbul, though, you know, that might have been poetic license or hyperbole. He was certainly of Istanbulite Greek Orthodox family, and he certainly spent formative years there. He shows this local knowledge when he talks about the different parts of the city. He was part of this cultural milieu, which we can call the Fanariots, the um, sort of elites of the Ottoman Greek community, who were residing mostly in uh, the district of Fener, uh, and who came to play a very important role in Ottoman administration, especially as diplomats and so forth. And it is in, in, exactly within that cultural context that Scarlatos grows up. His father is in the service of one of those Greek Orthodox princes. His name, old Scarlatos, his first name, very likely was given to him in honor of Scarlatos Kalimakis, one of those Greek Orthodox princes, Scarlatos being sort of a corruption of the Romanian version of the name Charles. And of course, Scarlatos' own personal story as it arises from his works follows very much the turmoil that came to characterize communal life for the Greek Orthodox in the early 19th century. So together with the Greek Revolution, his father's patron, falling out of grace with the Ottomans. He's first exiled and eventually after a long stay, protracted stay in Paris where he studies, he goes back to, he actually moves to Greece from his native Constantinople. And there he, he follows a very, very interesting career, not only as also as an administrator for the Greek kingdom. So he serves as royal commissioner to the Holy Synod of the Church of Greece. He's in charge, he's put in charge of the uh, Directorate of Education. Uh, I think most interestingly and he, it is in Greece that he receives a lot of criticism from intellectuals for, let's say, not being nationalistic enough, as that term was understood at the time. He's very openly attacked for being a pro-Ottoman or pro-Turkish. Stefan Spekmazoglu has done a wonderful job in tracing these intellectual debates and attacks, personal attacks against him on those grounds. How long did he live in Istanbul? He moved there when he was very young and then he was, as you say, exiled uh, in rather mysterious circumstances. How mm -hmm. long did he stay in Istanbul? Again, we're not exactly sure, but we may deduce from his works that he spent most of his childhood and early adulthood here. So uh, until the age of 30, we, we assume that he lived in Istanbul. He demonstrates immense local knowledge for someone, you know, who simply visited or who left at a very tender age. Uh, also an excellent knowledge of spoken Turkish, Ottoman Turkish, if not written. And as I said, he knows the city like the palm of his hand. So that's, that's not something a visitor could acquire. But the dates are very obscure, the exact dates of when he left for Paris, when he left for Greece. But surely the, the you know, the, the milestone, the turning point, the great turning point was the Greek Revolution and the reprisals that some Fanariot families had to face from the Ottoman authorities. So he wrote this three-volume book on Istanbul uh, or mm -hmm. Constantinople, and as it's three volumes, it's absolutely enormous. Uh, and it's yes. just this first volume that's been published uh, so far in English. Uh, mm -hmm. It's over 800 pages. And he wrote it entirely outside of Istanbul, I believe. Uh, and he wrote it over the course of 18 years, I think, from 1851 to 1869. You allude to it there. This, if you're outside of Istanbul, is so detailed and it displays such phenomenal knowledge of the city. It's absolutely remarkable that he was able to write it from abroad. 
that is so. That is very true. Uh, so from what we know, he wrote it in exile. He actually mentions that in his very first paragraphs in his introduction, in his preface. He says that I was longing for Constantinople as one would long for a lost lover, and I couldn't stop thinking about her and writing and reading about her. At the same time, however, throughout his book, we actually see him making direct references to notes he was taking while walking around the city. So our working hypothesis with Professor Presmazoglu is that he actually visited for protracted periods of time Istanbul and actually made extensive notes, especially when it comes to the topographical details and the routes. You know, the, the beautiful thing about this book is that it's also, despite its bulkiness, it's a very handy sort of guidebook. You can actually take this book and walk and read, and he actually suggests a route of course, half of the things he's describing are no longer standing, but still, it's a very hands-on guide, I would say. So we, we assume that he visited again and again and again, sometime after his exile, and that he took very meticulous notes. He even comments on, you know, the effects time has had on certain monuments. So he would say, you know, the X monument was standing during my youth, but no longer, or it has been restored. So we have hints that he actually revisited the city and spent a great deal of time walking around it uh, while writing this book or at least preparing the manuscript so he wrote it from 1851 i believe uh, or mm -hmm. thereabouts could you just situate the book in that time even though he wasn't actually in the ottoman empire uh, when he wrote it this was of course the era of you know the tanzimat reforms modernization centralization of the ottoman empire so it's obviously an era of considerable changes often associated with westernization how is that era reflected in the book and how did scarlatos look at these things I think that's a, that's a very key point that you're making, William, because he's Carlatus, even though he's away, he seems to be following Turkish politics very closely. And there are times in his narrative where he makes direct references to what at least we now call the Tanzimat reforms as a time of euphoria, as something he welcomes, as the greatest reforms Turkey has ever seen. He talks about Sultan Murad and the reforming sultans after him as the great reformers of Turkey who are bringing light into the darkness, very heavily sort of heavily loaded phrases uh, reminiscent of the sort of Western Enlightenment internalized in Southeast Europe. He very often criticizes at the same time the previous regime, the sort of Ottoman system as we knew it with Janissaries being very much in control of things. For his own personal sort of tragedy, family tragedy, he very much blames the Janissaries rather than, you know, the Ottoman state or the Ottoman sultans themselves. And from this we can deduce that he's a very much a believer of reform. He's probably a liberal. Uh, one more point that's interesting, and we can sort of combine it with what we said before about his career in Greece and the heavy criticism he received from staunch classicist nationalist intellectuals, is that for this book, Scarlatos Byzantius was honored with a Medjidia, so a Medal of Honor, a Sultanic Medal of Honor, together with my friend uh, Melike Sumertaj, a researcher at Wazji University. We managed to actually locate in the Ottoman archives the decision about this award. And the decision was very clear. It said, we think that Monsieur Byzantius has earned this great honor because unlike other Greek historians, he has spoken positively of the Islamic Uma of the 
basically the millet, the Muslim millet, the largest, most populous and most dominant confessional group in the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, that's really remarkable. One of the really defining and perhaps surprising notes throughout the book is this sympathy for Turks, really, for Muslims. Mm -hmm. uh, he really is very sympathetic indeed. He's almost a Turkophile. There's a quote, I think, from towards the beginning of the uh, mm -hmm. of the volume where he's introducing uh, his aim in a way. And he says that uh, uh, it's therefore necessary out of curiosity and love for learning to examine eagerly the traces of old Turkism before they completely vanish from the horizon like a multicolored rainbow after a rainstorm. So he's very much got this deliberate attempt to chronicle what he sees as almost a set of passing traditions. And in doing so, uh, he, he looks at them very sympathetically, actually. Absolutely. And that, I mean, that, that uh, quote that you aptly mentioned also shows that although he himself is for reform, for Tanzimat, he's very much like his, his scientific or let's say intellectual curiosity does not hinder him from uh, appreciating what is being lost in this process. He's actually a very sophisticated thinker. And if you ask me, he's an early ethnographer, an early geographer, an early sociologist. He's, he's very much a, a sort of renaissance man and he he does a superb work in addressing all these different aspects of what was constantinople at the time this book was written i suppose the other side of the coin is also that he often condemns the byzantine heritage or not heritage but uh, the old way of doing things as you would see it you know he often describes in detail various very gruesome episodes from the byzantine past and often kind of condemns those episodes and the more generally sort of byzantine history uh, that's probably also another surprising note that comes through throughout the volume that is true, even though I would say that his bias is reversed. I mean, condemning Byzantium since, you know, Gibbon's decline of the Roman Empire was a cliche almost in scholarship at the time. If anything, I think Scarlatus's emphasis is reversed. He's trying to show two things. First of all, that a lot of the criticism against the Byzantine Empire is ideologically charged and unwarranted. And secondly, I think he's really interested to study, show and reveal to the reader the countless instances of continuity between Roman, Byzantine, and eventually Ottoman culture, political organization, language, social habits. I think that's what makes him really, sets him really apart from most of his predecessors. I would say that what really makes him unique, I mean, if, if he has a fight to pick with this book, it's probably with the sort of Orientalist approaches to the city of Constantinople and to the the Ottoman Empire that, you know, abounded in his day. All those, you know, foreign travelers coming with no linguistic skills on the gap here, so to speak. And after a few years residing in Turkey, going back to Europe and becoming, you know, professors of Oriental studies in some university. He has, he has his criticism for those people. And for the Orientalism, very often the racism with which they would treat the, the, the subject matter, you know, the subject matter of the studies. And I mean, he has, if you, if you ask me, he's, he's right to do so. This guy has everything. He has the language skills, he has the local knowledge, he knows the primary sources very well. So um, I think he, he, he offers something different in that respect. Although he's not a Muslim himself, more of a sort of look from within uh, when it comes to uh, describing 19th century Constantinople. And as he does that describing, there are some very vivid passages that really do actually take the reader back to that time in a way. It's a bit of a cliche, but uh, it's certainly true. 
I don't know, as a character, Scarlatta, he does really strike me as someone who it would almost be really fun to hang out with or go for a beer with. You know, he's very laid Absolutely. back. Absolutely. You know, very curious. He's generally has this quite sort of wry, amused stance looking at things. It's not at all sort of ideological. You know, the tone throughout the book is very charming, I, I thought. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he has his really dull moments, you know, when he he describes with a sort of painful precision the length of each column of a church somewhere. But first, A, these are important information for some of us, the archaeologists among us. But B, I fully agree with you. He, I think what, what makes him a superb observer is that he doesn't have these sort of hierarchical hang-ups, you know, about high history and low history, high knowledge and low knowledge. Everything Thing triggers his interest. One moment he talks about sultans and emperors, great monuments. The other moment he talks about gypsy fortune tellers, lowly fishermen, and their habits, you know, along the Bosporus. I think that's that's what makes him, as you pointed out, very very aptly worth going out for a beer with. I would I would definitely I would definitely take up that invitation if I could. Now, how did the uh, idea of translating and publishing this monumental work first emerge? I mean, it's such a long text. It must have been quite a daunting process. And presumably it was many years ago that you started, uh, that you embarked on it. It was actually, it was something of a of a dream, let's say, of an aspiration. When I first set foot to, to Istanbul, when I moved here in 2006, it was one of the first books that came to my hands. And immediately, as I started getting to know, you know, Ottomanists, Ottoman historians, Byzantine historians, political science sociologists, uh, you know, desperate for uh, primary sources from that period, the first thing that came to my mind is how much they would actually appreciate this, all, all of these friends of mine. So that's, that's how it started. But of course, this one thing, you know, wishing it, wanting it, and another thing, actually making time for it, and most importantly, finding you know the funds for uh, such a big project and I would have this project would have never been realized if it wasn't for the Yenikoi Greek Orthodox community and in London the John Fafalius Foundation who were very very generously agreed to fund the translation and the actually printing of this first volume and hopefully more to come. And the translation is obviously such a massive undertaking, apart from the sheer size of the text. What were the particular challenges uh, that you faced uh, in translating the book? Well, I think, first of all, the reason why no one had before attempted to translate this book is because of its peculiar um, language. So Scarlatos uses what we call Logia Cathare, we say it's the, a very sort of difficult version of archaic Greek that combines, you know, ancient Greek, Byzantine Greek, church Greek, uh, with quite a few Turkish and old Ottoman words sort of Hellenized in the process. So it's more of a palimpsest than actually, a, you know, a, a standard Greek version of Greek with rules that everyone could translate. I think the second difficulty lies in the fact, and I think that that actually took me, that was the hardest bit, uh, not just translating the text, but actually providing a commentary for this text, like making this text readable today to someone who's not necessarily, you know, doesn't know Istanbul or Ottoman Istanbul, as a matter of fact, that well. And also, you know, correcting some of his mistakes, complimenting his references. His references were very erratic. So he would simply give a name and paraphrase. So every single 
single reference he makes, I try to sort of find in the original, the original language, give pages, numbering, paragraphs. That that was that was a really painstaking process, but also I would say fun because I got to learn a lot of things and share them with the reader. So uh, I think the the end result, and that you can tell from when you open the book, you can see that especially in the beginning, half the page is commentary, the other half is actually Scarlatos's text. The end result, I think, reads like almost like a narrated encyclopedia. There are all these entries under the text of names, places, ideas, uh, intellectual currents, uh, religious groupings that comprise the universe of Constantinople and Istanbul over a period of 2,000 years. <laughs> a minor point that, again, it really, really killed me while translating was uh, transliteration of names. Uh, you know, the habit in the 19th century Greek scholarship was to always Hellenize foreign names. And that that really took its toll on me, trying to identify what he actually means, finding the, the actual reference he wants to make. And uh, as I said, the, the, there's so many, so much detail and so many interesting finds that came about as I was translating this. I found a, a substantial section where Scarlatos originally, I thought, was paraphrasing uh, Sir Richard Burton. But then I realized that the text he was paraphrasing was actually much later. So apparently, among other things, Sir Richard Burton, the famous polyglot and translator, ripped off Scarlatos as well as a as a fluent reader of Greek that he was. So that was that was an interesting revelation for me. Yes, that's all I can say. It's it's still daunting on me, you know, the amount of work that had to go to this, but it was definitely fun. Yeah, pardon my ignorance, but is the Greek that Scarlatos wrote in very similar to present day Greek or is there a big difference? Do you have to translate mm, it into modern it's uh, well. It's what we call logia katharevusa. This is a sort of 19th century, very archaic form of Greek that was actually, in some forms, continued to be the official language of Greece until the 1970s. It's basically an effort in the sort of 17th, 18th century to cleanse Greek from foreign influences and make it sound closer to ancient Greek. So the grammar is very much like ancient Greek, and the syntax, the vocabulary is uh, sort of medieval in modern Greek. But it's, yes, it's a, it's a very archaic form of Greek. And uh, as I said, in Scarlatus' case, it also has all these, you know, daily Turkish and Ottoman Turkish words that have been Hellenized in the text. So it's, it's a very sort of specialized language that he's using. And how long did the translation of this first volume take? It yes, it took me three full years of my life. <laughs> the, though my hope is that the the forthcoming volumes will take less, because as I said, one of the hardest and most painstaking parts of this project were the commentary, and you know the commentary gets shorter and shorter as we advanced down the volumes, because you know only at first instance I mentioned a name or a place, then I simply refer back to my previous comments. So so I'm hoping to complete the next two volumes in two years' time to like both of them but i don't want to eat my words one day but this is this is my projection for now let's say well fingers crossed uh while I'm, while we're speaking i also want to talk about istos uh, the publisher of this book uh, it's yes. a small publishing house uh, but a very distinct one uh, here in istanbul uh it's published uh, a lot of books on istanbul's history particularly its greek history uh, or the history of greeks in istanbul and anatolia as well as other minorities and it was only i believe set up just a few years ago and i think you were involved in the in the founding of, of istos what year exactly did you get started and what was the kind of motivation behind behind uh, behind that 
That's right. We, together with uh, six old friends and uh, collaborators, we uh, we founded Istos in 2012. Our goal was to um, fill in what we thought was a very important gap in the market in the wider sense. The, there was no publishing house specializing in um, Greek, like room, as we call them in, in Turkey, Greek Orthodox history, culture, and literature. Uh, there hasn't, there used to be one, but there hadn't been one for more than 50 years. To be honest, we also took our, as we used as a source of inspiration from Aras, uh, which is the sort of Armenian equivalent and which predates us. Of course, the Armenians are a much more populous community than the Rums at the, at, at the present and the Greek Orthodox. Uh, but, you know, we thought that something similar could be done with the Greek Orthodox community's history. From a secular perspective, we know, I mean, it's not, you know, our books are hardly ever of a religious nature. We're mostly interested in the multicultural past of Istanbul, but also, and most importantly, it's present, uh, it's multicultural present. So we, one of the things that at Istos we try to avoid desperately was, you know, dry nostalgia about a long lost innocence. We, we very much want to contribute to today's Turkish society. We, we try to integrate and we want to integrate. I think, yes, that's, that's about it. That summarizes Istos in a nutshell. I would like to add that apart from the actual publications, Istos has a small uh, sort of film producing, produce, film production arm, Istos Film. We've done some films as well that have gone quite well internationally and nationally. And finally, we try to um, provide some seminars, uh, language, Greek language, Greek music, Greek literature seminars uh, to our friends. And that is something we take very seriously as well. As I said, it's a sort of Turkish publishing house, publishing mostly in Turkish, but not exclusively in Turkish, but with a sort of Greek Orthodox interest. I think that's the best way to summarize it. Istos, I think, used to be connected to a cafe on the street just alongside Galatasaray University on the hill going down to Topane. And Uh, just this month, we we moved uh, the cafe to Tel Sokak, which is uh, very near Pandora, one of the most famous uh, bookshops in Deolo, uh, or very near McDonald's, (laughs) (laughs) if I could give a clearer landmark. So Tel Sokak number two, we're on the ground floor, and there's always one of us there, you know, reading away, drinking Greek coffee, and or Turkish coffee. We're always happy and glad to see people with a with a keen interest, common interest with us. Yeah. Yeah, I think the McDonald's is definitely one of the monuments that Scarlatos Byzantios would uh, recognize today. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> uh, that move, was that of your choosing or was it a necessity or what was, it behind, was, what was the thinking behind that? Unfortunately, and uh, it's the same old story, you know, in Istanbul at the moment. It's always some, you know, real estate interest sort of pushing, pushing you further out, prices going up you know, rent going up. So we, we sadly had to leave. But we, we're not, you know, nothing daunts our spirits. We will reproduce the same sort of warm and exciting atmosphere in our new place. I think we've already done so. As you mentioned there, most of Istos's stuff is published in Turkish. Uh, are there any more English titles planned uh, for the future that we should be looking out for or anything in Turkish or any other language that you're particularly excited about? Well, uh, apart from Turkish, we've published in obviously Greek, some English and French titles as well. So we have a, uh, the memoirs of, or rather the diary of the very famous uh, Greek poet, Yorgos Seferis, his visit to Cappadocia, that's in English. And apart from Scarlatos's forthcoming volumes, we, we've been planning an English translation of a text that we just published in ancient Greek, 
and Turkish translation, a parallel text called uh, The Leisures of Philotheos. This is a, I would say, 17th, 18th century text. Uh, It's supposed to be one of the earliest, if not the first, uh, novel of modern Greek literature, uh, written again by a Phanariot and one of those famous princes, Greek Orthodox princes of what became later Romania, Nicolas Mavrokordatos, and we, we would very much like to publish it in English as well to make it available to a wider public than just, you know, Greek and Turkish. Uh, it hasn't been published before to English, into English. There's a French translation by Professor Bouchard. So I think it's gonna, it's something we really, really look forward to. What's the theme of that book? The book is, again, a fantastic text. It's this Nicolas Mavrokordatos, this wealthy Phanariot prince, comes up with an alias, a guy called Philotheos, which means God-loving person. Unlike what the name suggests, his hero is very much a child of the early Enlightenment. He's very much into the latest intellectual trends from East and West. And together with some friends, he's walking around Istanbul, having various, you know, adventures. He meets different people. He discusses literature, politics, philosophy. He, there's a very beautiful chapter when he ends up in jail and he describes the, the inmates, the sort of types of inmates that he sees in, the, in those uh, jails uh, and all of them being, you know, a very multicultural, multi-ethnic mix. Uh, it's a, it's a truly fascinating book of a philosophical mood, but uh, definitely something, a, a book I would recommend to anyone who, you know, who has a passion for Istanbul uh, during the Ottoman period. That was Harris Theodorelis Rigas. Many thanks to him. He mentioned a bit earlier in our conversation Aras, the Armenian-focused publishing house in Istanbul. Coincidentally, we've published two episodes on the work of Aras with Laura Sara, who's an editor there. So do delve into the Turkey Book Talk archives to listen back to those. I'll put up links at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com. Remember to consider signing up as a Turkey Book Talk member if you enjoy the podcast and want to help support it. Membership gets you access to our special 35% discount on Turkey and Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview as it's published. Transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive of over 90 conversations so far and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me covering Turkish history and politics, literature and various other things. To become a member and get all that just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's official Patreon account. Also do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk if you like it on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like the Facebook page to stay fully updated with new episodes and I do enjoy hearing from listeners so please do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com But until the next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 